0: Our concern is not that we are unsatisfiable. Our concern is that we are too often easily satisfied. That we find satisfaction in things that are trite. They're artificial or plastic. Satisfy us in your love. Early in the day and through the end of the day before it gets away from us, Let us be satisfied in him alone. Take your Bible, please, to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. And I'll read for you from the word of the Lord in Exodus chapter 34. This account of God's work with his people, his people who have been sinful, his people who have broken covenant, so quickly turn to replacements of Yahweh. And Moses pleads on their behalf. In chapter 34, we find the continued covenant renewal of a long-suffering God to his fallen people. Exodus 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the, people go in the, uh, let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. The Lord said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord." It is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their Asherim. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when you whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you are invited, you eat of their sacrifice. You take of their daughters and sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread seven days. You shall eat unleavened bread, as I command you, at the time appointed in the month Abib. For the month Abib, you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, firstborn cow and sheep, firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days shall you work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the feast of wheat harvest, the feast of ingathering at the, end, at the year's end. Three times in a year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you, And enlarge your borders, no one shall covet your land. When you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The Lord said to Moses, write these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near. He commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. When he came out, he told the people of Israel what he was commanded and the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put a veil over his face again until he went in and spoke with the Lord. This is the word of God. We pray that he adds his blessing to its reading. You can be seated and children uh, who are of age, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Before I uh, start the sermon this morning, I I simply want to express a thankfulness, a thankfulness for our church elders. Uh, They gave themselves the last two days to getting away to a planning and prayer getaway. A friend of the church uh, gave us um, some lodging, a vacation home up north. And we were able to go up there and uh, spend significant time praying for you. I, wanna, I want you to know that in our about 36 hours together, praying for you was a big part of that time together. Uh, and the busyness of administration of church, of leading the church, sometimes what gets pushed to the fringes, sadly, is dedicated time of praying for our church. And so they gave themselves to be together, to pray, to plan, to vision for discipleship opportunities in the future. And uh, I want to thank them and their families for giving of their time together so that they can serve our congregation. Uh, we pray that fruit comes out of that. One of the things we prayed for is the preaching of the word. So I want to do that now prayerfully. Uh, broken things. We have foster children in our home. And as I thought about broken things, I thought, There's a lot of emotion in foster children, just a lot of emotion. Maybe you've seen it, and you're like, yep, that's a lot of emotion. Maybe you've heard about it, um, but it's a lot of emotion. And sometimes it just, like, you don't expect it, and it happens. And a few weeks ago, uh, a foster son grabbed an electronic device and chucked it across the room in emotional hysteria. And it broke. It was one of my daughter's things, and it was broken. She came to me, and she's like, this just happened. And so I worked at fixing it and putting it back together, and I I think it's operational for the time being until there's more emotion. I think about how often things break. And they're not just stuff. Sometimes it's relationships, sometimes it's friendships, it's coworkers, it's it's marriages, and things break. But I'm reminded as I think about the reality of the fall and things breaking, I'm reminded that... When we read in the final revelation of all of God's work, when Eden is restored and God is with his people, the declaration is, behold, I make all things new. And as I come to Exodus 34, I I can't help but think about that. I think about the people who have broken the law. I think about Moses in in anger over sin, breaking the tablets. Which, by the way, I would just guard you from assuming that somehow Moses is held in contempt because he did that. I, I think there's a righteous indignation similar to when Christ flips the tables. I, I, I'm just hesitant to throw Moses under the bus like, oh, he's got an anger problem. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know. I don't know if that's true in the text. Maybe, maybe you've seen it that way before. But it's broken. And God, in long-suffering faithful covenant love is going to make things new in Exodus 34. Maybe you noticed as I read, you thought, wow, is, is this a repeat? And there are some scholars who think that actually this is a mistaken duplicate of the last several chapters that we studied where God's giving his covenant. They think, well, did, did somehow a copy slip in here and we're just reading something from before? In restating the covenant, it sounds similar But we can tell pretty clearly from this text and from Deuteronomy that God, in fact, is renewing the covenant. So, as we come to this text about God making this new, there's a reoccurring revelation in the Bible that God does take what's broken and make it new. The people have broken their covenant relationship, chapter 32 through 34. They have turned to, maybe the word I would use is they turned quickly to other representations for their hope. You remember two weeks ago I said, I think we need to be careful that this fashioning of a golden bull is not necessarily blatant old Egypt idolatry, but it's rather, oh, we're afraid that we won't be taken care of. We don't see Moses. We can't see God. So can we make something we can see that we can be confident in? that, that makes their rebellion much more familiar to me. How often I look to things that I can see and touch, that I can trust in. So in this chapter, it covers the giving of a new stone tablet the renewing of the covenant, and a new appearance on Moses' face. So that's what we want to see. Three things broken, three things made new. Let's get right to them. The first one, the new tablets, I would say we can see this in the first section, which is Exodus 34, 1 through 9. God tells Moses to cut two new tablets of stone. Moses does that. In verses 5 through 9, it seems clear that the people needed most a new view of God. Not just more law, right? Um, I I need you to make more stone tablets and take to the people because they're not good people. They need more law. I hope that what you see here is not just in these first nine verses, God says, all right, the tablets are broken. Let's write some new ones. Let's send them to the people. This is how they will behave. What I want you to understand from these nine verses is that God does not put regenerating confidence in the law. The law does not make us new. In fact, if you remember, we have three uses of the law. One of them is that the law shows us we need to be made new. And so he says, bring up tablets. Be careful, this is going to be consecrated gathering. I don't even want any of your animals grazing opposite the mountain. And then the Bible says that the Lord comes down in the smoke on the top of the mountain and does what Moses had asked for in chapter 33. In chapter 33, as Josh preached last week, in verses 21 through 23, Yahweh had been asked to pass in front of Moses. Show me that you will be with us. Because you remember Moses knew, I don't want the promised land. I don't want military victory and not Yahweh. So the visible evidence is so important for this people. Their faith is weak. It's very young. And they needed to see. When they couldn't see Moses, they made an object. Now Moses says, if if you're not going with us, we won't survive. Then look in your Bible to verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. I'm going to state it this way. I told Jay this week, we were talking about this text, and I said, I I think I could preach verse 6 and 7. And he said, why don't you just do that? And I said, I'm not sure it's the best form of teaching for me to stop here too long on parts that my preaching style just wants to sit in. That's verse 6 and 7. I would say, though, that these two verses are absolutely indispensable if you hope to have true understanding of God and what he's doing. I think these two verses are irreplaceable if you are trying to comprehend what is broken and how it can be made new. This declaration of God is so important to understanding what God's doing. I would compare it to this. If you're trying to understand these United States of America... I would contend you can't begin to understand these United States without first considering its declaration. So these United States declare, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed with, uh, by their great creator with certain inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In that revelation of who we see ourselves to be as a civil square you understand a lot about america in that description everyone is equal and they all have the right here to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness don't forget that's how we introduce ourselves don't expect us to contradict that and i think sometimes we do Expect us to contradict that. That introductory statement is what we see in verse 6 and 7 of God. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. What follows after the name is a verbal revelation of God's characteristics. I've chosen to split verse 6 and 7 for you. I want to show you how in verse 6 we read a thorough description, word pictures, of God as tender. In verse 7, a word picture of God as righteous. So these five attributes of tenderness meant to reassure Moses. Keep in mind, what Moses needed to hear was that Yahweh... Was a tender father. Because what was Moses asking? Are are you out? We've been bad kids. Do you leave now? And God answers that question with a verbal revelation of himself. The Lord, the Lord. The first characteristic is relayed to Moses that God is compassionate, he genuinely cares about his people. Which, if you remember back, when Moses arrives with the elders, he says, The Lord has heard your cries. The people were thrilled. There is a God in heaven who knows we're hurting in slavery. The Lord is compassionate, He is gracious. He does those things people don't deserve. He is slow to anger, He is patient. His patience is abundant. He is abounding or great in steadfast love. The Hebrew word hased. A study of this particular use in its context reminds us that this is a reliable loyalty of one member of a covenant relationship toward another member of a covenant relationship. God is great in covenant-keeping love. Fifth, he is abounding in faithfulness. Whatever he says is correct, reliable, and can be counted on in life and death situations. God's promise can be counted on even to eternal life and death. That's important, isn't it? God relays these five characteristics. He reveals this to Moses. And then, verse seven, he relays four similar but increasingly distinct characteristics of God. Complementing. First comes keeping steadfast love to thousands. I don't go back on my word. Second, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Only God can do this. The New Testament doctrine of the forgiveness of sin, on which our eternal hope depends, flows from the very nature that God really is more eager to forgive than we are to ask. When Jesus is looking out at Jerusalem, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you into my protection if you would have just asked? He is more ready to forgive. He delights more in forgiveness than sinners in asking. Now, at this point, God issues what I think is a protective Statement. He protects his name here. He guards against the accusation that he will somehow be an indifferent God towards sin. That he is somehow only loving, only gracious, only long-suffering, only fatherly, and not also judging. And so we have the last two attributes. And they're introduced in Hebrew this way. In English we read, but... But in Hebrew, it would sound something like this. While at the same time, so those things are true, tenderness, righteousness, and then expounding on that, God will not clear the guilty. You can rest assured in the righteousness of God, he never looks the other way and ignores guilt. Never. He is righteous. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. What what does that mean? Does that mean that God's going to punish my great-grandchildren for my sin? Not exactly. However, sin is a powerful influence. And what is being said here is that if I give myself to a particular sin... And I am punished by God for that sin. My children don't get to say, whew, God took his anger out on them. I can go on doing that thing and now there's some sort of statute of limitations or I'm grandfathered in. My grandfather sinned, I'm grandfathered in. That is that is being rejected here. God will deal righteously with the sin even if it's repeated from one generation to the next. If he punished it in this generation and it reoccurs in this, he's faithful to punish it again. However, I do know that our sin does often infect our children and grandchildren. I read years ago, I thought about it as I was writing this sermon, years ago there's a book called Whole in Your Holiness. And I read a a little quote about some of the things that we take lightly. And he said this, If you take lightly your place in the church, you will shoot yourself in the foot. That's true, right? You will limp. You will limp. If you, in your Christian walk, regard your place in church as take it or leave it, be there or don't be there, serve or don't serve, care for each other or don't care for each other, you will limp. You will shoot yourself in the foot. He goes on to say in the quote, You shoot yourself in the foot, you shoot your children in the leg. Raise children in a home that thinks the church doesn't matter much. They might not just limp, they might be immobile. But you may shoot your grandchildren in the heart. They might not survive at all our indifferences to things that matter. The balance here, his tenderness and his righteousness... The balance here is what Tozer calls holiness. I would suggest that you think about the possibility that holiness is not, in fact, an attribute of God. What I mean by that is holiness is not a specific attribute, but holiness is the way you say all these attributes are wonderful together, holy. These attributes of tenderness and righteousness describe the holiness of God. It passes before Moses. Now, here's the question. What's your response to things like that? Like when I read those two verses, and you see Moses, he's tucked in. He's tucked in like this this cleft and this divide in the rock. And God's afterglow passes before him, and his face burns. And, and he says, the Lord, the Lord, I am Kind and gracious and fatherly, but I do not excuse the guilty. I will execute justice on the evildoer. What's your response to that? Moses' is found in verses 8 and 9, and I hope it's yours. Moses quickly bowed his head, in verse 8, toward the earth and worshipped, and then cried out in prayer, God, if this is you, then if you will show favor to me, please go in the midst of us. Don't leave us. Well, I'll give you a land, and I've given you riches from Egypt, and I'll, you'll, you'll, you'll have more children, you'll become a nation. No, 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 that, that is not what we're asking for. Go with us, because we are likely to sin again. We must have you there to pardon our iniquity and make us your own inheritance. <laughs> Think about how crummy an inheritance that is. That's, that's really a raw deal. Moses says, okay, God, God, if you like us, Then make us your inheritance. I mean, if you're asking your parents or grandparents for an inheritance, you don't ask for people like this. Give me a group of people that are really disappointing. (laughs) Give me cars that don't run and houses that are uninhabitable. You sure? Make us your inheritance, he says. But based on what we've just seen, this God does amazing things. And, you know, sometimes that's the application of a sermon. What do you do when you hear stated from Scripture how awesome God is? Do you need to go do something? No. You need to behold God. You need to see, hear, and know him in the person of Jesus Christ, and you need to bow your head in joyful delight of who he is. That's the application. That's what you need to do. The foremost concern of Moses was that Yahweh might not remain with the people. All the other things, the tabernacle, the land, the inheritance, meant nothing. In the book, God is the gospel. The author writes, I hope you hear this. This is important to me. So therefore I'm going to say, I hope you hear this. This is important to me. In the book, God is the gospel, the author writes... The gospel and its many precious blessings are not ultimately what make the good news good, but means of seeing and savoring God himself. Uh, End quote. The reason that quote matters for us is because God has already said in chapter 33, you can have the land, you're not slaves anymore, you have possessions from Egypt, You're you're gonna multiply You're going to become a significant people. All the enemies that are there, I'm going to take care of that. Well, that's good news. It was not what Moses wants, and it's not what I want you to want. I don't want you ultimately to see the good news and say, wait, 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 we don't go to hell. Well, sure. Wait, 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 all these promises to us are guaranteed? Well, sure. I get to walk on streets of gold and live life forever? Well, yeah, I guess that's true. That's what you want? So, to renew the quote, the good news is means of seeing and savoring God. Forgiveness is good because it opens the way to enjoying God. Justification is good because it wins access to the presence and pleasure of God. Eternal life is good because it assures us everlasting delight in Christ in the presence of God. That's good news. God renews for Moses the tablets. But more than just saying, okay, these people need these 10 rules again. He says, when you take it back down, your face is shining. Tell the people who is with them. The Lord, the Lord. Fatherly, faithful, and strong. And I would contend that in that revelation, that in the good news that we get that, the law becomes really enjoyable. Not only does he renew the law, the tablets, but he also renews the covenant. In verses 10 through 28, we see the covenant repeated. I won't take time to re-preach what we've been doing for two months. But I do want to show you in verse 10 and 11, they serve as sort of the preamble to the renewing of the law. Like this summarizes it. If you look at verse 10, what you see in verse 10 is this statement. I will do marvels that have never been seen, and you are going to watch. <laughs> Verse 11, you will observe what I command. Now, again, this is important. First of all, would you notice that this is conditioned? God says, I will, and he says, you will. But we know they won't. There's the condition. Now, you remember when God made a covenant with Abraham? God tore an animal apart, which was part of signing a covenant. And then the two parties would walk through the halves. So they would tear the upper half from the lower half. And there would be this bloody sign that this is serious. Like death. Serious. You remember when God made that covenant with Abraham? What did God do to Abraham? Knocked him out. That was not conditional. God didn't say, hey, hey, when you wake up, you need to hear the part you're responsible for. That was not conditional. I want you to notice this. Because lest you get somewhere else in Scripture and read something about God's relationship with these people and go, wait, I thought God said. He did. He said, I will, you will. For conclusion of that conversation, read the New Covenant. You will observe what I have commanded. They must obey. They are lacking faith. By the way, do you see the good gift in what he says in verse 10? I'm going to do amazing stuff, and you are going to, what's he say? See it. They have a problem with faith. They're struggling walking by faith. The evidence of things hoped for are, uh, uh, no, no, I got the wrong part. Come on. Evidence of things not yet seen. What's the first part? Substance of things hoped for. Was that you? You're a good friend. Okay. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of those not yet seen. They're struggling to walk by faith. God says, I'm going to do amazing things. You're going to see them. He's helpful in their lack of faith. Look at verses 12 through 26. These are the terms of the covenant. I'm going to go through them quickly. You cannot make A conflicting covenant. We're in covenant. You can't go promise conflicting things elsewhere. Look at verse 18 through 21. You must memorialize the covenant. Do that by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In verse 22, the Feast of Weeks, the first fruit of the wheat harvest, the Feast of Ingathering. Look at verse 23 and 24. Just so that you never forget that you belong to me, You must present yourself before me. Look at verse 25 and 26. Our fellowship must remain a consecrated fellowship and be distinct from commonality. Practice our fellowship together in particular ways. All of the things God is doing Are done out of the twofold nature we read in verse 6 and 7. Twofold nature tenderness, righteousness, not conflicting, but balancing holiness. They all flow out of that twofold nature. Both of those aspects, tenderness and righteousness, are seen so clearly at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is either tender, loving adoption or it's righteous condemnation. In the context of renewing the covenant, the self-revelation of God that we saw in those verses has an even deeper meaning. Showing the wonder of God's grace to repeat the covenant. I mean, mom and dad, we don't do this We don't do it well. We say things like, if I have to say it again, da, da, da. And what we see here in a truly holy God, without fault or error, is he says, if you break it, I'll say it again. I wonder, mom and dad, I want to say a word here about the way we do parent. Parent. After you've given your child a spanking. If you say, we don't spank our children. I want to meet that child. I have serious questions. So, after you spank your child. There are two things that you need to teach them. Because of this chapter you need to affirm to them, this punishment doesn't erase love. It's not like I can love you or I can punish you. I love you and I'll punish you. And second, and most urgently, I want you to hear this, so I'm going to say, most urgently, after that punishment, you need to remind them this punishment is evangelistic not moralistic parent i hope you get that i hope you get that and i hope it stays on your heart for all the years of parenting i'm not punishing you because i don't like the inconveniences of your misbehavior that's terrible please don't do that they're breaking stuff all over the place all over the place deal with it (laughs) it's part of having children But you're going to punish them. You're going to spank because it's evangelistic. You need to say in that punishment, do you understand, little Johnny? You are a sinner. And the wage of sin is death. And because you're going to continue to sin, even though this is the punishment, you need a mediator who will stand before the throne of God in your place because this is how bad you are. You're bad enough that in all of my love and in all of my tender care, I spank you. That's how bad your sin is. And therefore, you're not going to stop sinning. That's not why I spanked you. I spanked you because I'm trying to preach the gospel to your heart. That was sin. There's punishment for sin. And Jesus can stand before the throne of God on your behalf. And plead your innocence. So, renewing of covenant, promise, and faithfulness. Third, a new appearance. Now, this one is very exciting and has to move very quickly. A, first thing we see in verses 27 and 28 is a positional appearance of the office of Moses. I want to say, real quickly, that we see something pretty significant in verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you. Well, he means by that Israel, right? Nope, because there's an and. I have made a covenant with you, and therefore, as you represent Israel, the covenant's with them too. Now, all sorts of like gospel bells and whistles should start going off in your head. He says, man, these people, but I'll make a covenant with you, and you're an Israelite, so I guess it's with them too. (laughs) You remember when when Moses would go out to the tent of meetings? You remember when he would walk outside the city? Like, okay, these people are really in trouble. They're really bad. Moses is going to walk over there, and he's going to go in this tent of meeting, which had never been talked about before chapter 33. It's not the tabernacle, because that doesn't exist yet. It's going to be built later. So he goes out to this tent of meeting. And what did all the people do? They walked out to the door, they stood up, and they watched. He's going, as one of us, to go and meet with our God on our behalf. So God says, I will make a covenant with you, and therefore, it is a covenant with Israel. In this way, it is obvious to us, isn't it, that Moses is a foreshadow of Christ, our mediator. And then in case you, in case you thought, well, Pastor, that's a real stretch. at for 27. And Moses is there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without food or drink. <laughs> okay. What do we learn? Moses, first of all, is supernaturally sustained without food and water. Only God can do that. And then secondly, this chapter must point our attention forward to something else. That is Jesus, our mediator. Jesus in the wilderness engaged in spiritual battle. Listen closely. Our salvation hung in the balance while Jesus engaged in spiritual battle with Satan. If he lives righteously... He would die righteously in our place, and his living righteously and dying righteously could be credited to our account. So yeah, Moses is exalted in this text. Moses is exalted in a position. He's the mediator. Wow, Moses going on. It, he's so exalted that other leaders of Israel get jealous. Well why Moses? Why not us too? He was God's chosen mediator. He is exalted. But I want you to understand that when the Bible reveals things, it often reveals them from the lesser to the greater. It points us to something, and we're like, oh, I can understand that. Yeah, you can understand this. Well, watch. This is what it means. That's what's happening with Moses, the lesser to the greater. So not only is that his position, but I want you to see his appearance Verse 29 through 35. And I, I just have to, I have to say this really quickly. Look at verse 29. When Moses came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain and Moses did not know that his skin on his face was shining. And it's because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel... What's the word? What's the word? Aaron and all the people of Israel saw... You know, they, they've got a problem, right? They've got all these questions and uncertainties. Is God really with us? How do we know he's here? And now every time Moses walks by, like, oh yeah, that's right. God is near to us. His face is shining because he talked with God. All the people saw it and were afraid. Every time when Moses went up to commune with God, his face would radiate, would shine. That radiance, though it initially frightened them, was designed to testify that God was with his people, and the mediator was the means with which he would fellowship. Dare we say that without Moses, Israel would not exist. But Moses is nothing like Jesus. Moses' glory wasn't inherent glory. Moses was like a reflection of glory. He was just the result of witnessing glory. His glory was left over. Jesus' glory is eternal, not derived from God. Jesus' glory is divine glory such as the Father. Let's say that again. Jesus doesn't get glorified appearance because he met with God. Jesus has eternal Divine, innate glory, as one with the Father. Hebrews 1:3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on High. Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians 3. If, uh, if you have something to write on or if you want to go to 2 Corinthians 3 uh, and just, just write a note, I want to say a lot more about 2 Corinthians 3, but I'm going to go through it quickly here. In verse 6, he has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Okay? So Paul's picking up on... You remember back in Exodus when Moses' face was shining? There's something more, lesser to greater. Not of the letter... But of the Spirit, we are now sufficient. For the letter, the law kills. But the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with so much glory that Moses' face would shine, that Israel would gaze on him, will not our ministry of the Spirit of life produce even more glory? Yes, We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. All that stuff about Moses, he goes up there, he comes down there like, your face. Yes, I've, I've talked to God. And we see in that Christ who comes to us. In his earthly ministry all veiled, all that glory looking kind of common in his appearance. But his is a much better ministry, and we bear the sign of his ministry. Matthew five fourteen, <clears throat> Jesus says, <laughs> you are the light of the world. Like a city up on a hill that you can't hide... Or a candle that you light and don't put a basket over it. Let your lighted countenance appear before men that they would glorify God. You understand what this means? This means that we have the ministry of the spirit of life. We go and commune and fellowship and speak with God. When we leave that and go back to the places we are from... Our countenance should shine as a testimony. God is present. I wonder if you read this account and you think, "Why it must have been a powerful reminder that God was real when Moses came down and his face was glowing. But I wonder if you likewise think, does regeneration, does the ministry of the Spirit from deadness to life, produce such a transformation in me that my neighbor's Or my church, or my coworkers go, God must be real. You can't help but think back to the last couple chapters and think, they really broke that. You can't help but think about earthly things in your house, in your family, things that matter. We were visiting my sister-in-law for Christmas, either last year or two years ago, and she had a wooden bowl on a shelf. No, clay. It was pottery. That was worse. She had a pottery bowl on a shelf that had been made for her by her daughter in her high school pottery class, a.k.a. irreplaceable. (laughs) And our foster son went to the shelf and reached up high and pulled the bowl down into a thousand pieces. You can think of stuff in your family that is broke. You can't replace it. You can think of things you've said. I I thought about this week, I thought about a dozen different applications I want to make, and and there are a dozen. But if you'll allow me, I want to hone in on marriage relationships. You can think of things that are broken. You said something. You neglected something. You betrayed trust. Or it's been done to you. And you think, this is broken. And maybe that's true. I think the testimony of this text, God repeating his instruction, I know what you've done, here's what I want you to do. God repeating his own character, you are broken and I have restored you. You can do the same in your marriage. Being able to behold the presence of God, even in your home, knowing God is near to his people. We, we are not only domesticating, we are worshiping. The way you speak to her or him, the way you comfort him or her, you are worshiping. And you say, Yeah, but it's broken. And I would say to you this morning, Behold, he is making all things new. And if this horrific crime scene can be made new, and I am totally confident that it's true of us, husbands, wives, it's true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us in your word, in this ancient recorded testimony of your tenderness, righteousness, long-suffering, covenant faithfulness, being true, being merciful and gracious. Thank you for showing us that absolutely, as a mediator in Christ, stands before us in our place at the throne. Oh, God, you are making all things new. I pray that we would hear that truth of your greatness, that we would would be witness to your marvelous deeds and we would not grow hopeless. And just this morning, God, just applying that to something as specific as our relationships, maybe husband and wife, maybe friendships, coworkers. But God, as we apply that to the wounds, the brokenness, the shattered pieces, help us to proclaim gladly In Christ, our mediator, you are making all things new. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me?